Thanks for deciding to listen to this podcast, and thanks for not turning it off. At any time in the next few minutes, you have a decision to make, to keep listening or to turn it off. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about modern choice theory, but first, here's a message from our sponsor. Make things better. That's the goal. Make things better by making better things. That's marketing. Marketing works. It works because we show up in the world with something that makes a change for the better. And we've discovered the single best way to learn marketing. It's called the Marketing Seminar, an interactive, ongoing, discussion-based, project-based workshop that actually works. It's back. It's back again at akimbo.com go. Find all the details. If you are serious about changing the culture, if you are serious about showing up in a way that grows your project, your business, your cause, I hope you'll check out the marketing seminar. It's at akimbo.com slash go. It's back. It works because you do. We'll see you there. I haven't heard anyone talk about this before, but I want to share some thoughts with you about decisions, about options, about leverage, and about responsibility. I want to argue that over the last 100,000 years, and particularly in the last 20, there has been a gradual and then rapid expansion in the number of options that every single person on the planet has every day. That if you think about hunter-gatherers, there aren't that many important decisions to make in a typical day. Go left or go right. Go after that animal or this animal. Sure, there might be life or death consequences, but as you confront each of those decisions, they are not strange to you. They are the decisions just like the ones you made the day before. But now, as we confront a new modernity where each of us has way more leverage, we have to embrace the fact that there are choices to be made. And if those choices aren't things we even see, we can't make them. If those choices are things that we would rather avoid, then we will try not to see them. If we just think about the last 150 years, we have been through a transition. It began with this. Most people were farmers. Farmers have to make some substantial decisions every single year, what to plant, how to use their acreage. But most of the time when they are doing their work, the decisions are familiar. The decisions don't have that much leverage from day to day. Factory work made it even easier to go through the day without making certain kinds of decisions, that the choices in front of the factory worker generally involved choosing to do what they were instructed to do by the foreman. Then we move to freelance work. Freelance work and small business work often involve more choices. What business are you in? Which clients do you choose? How will you do your work? How do you know when it's done? What will you choose to learn next? Suddenly, there's been an explosion in the choices we have to make as professionals as we seek to go forward. Then, if you choose to go toward entrepreneurship, the decisions 
get even bigger because the options are bigger. Should you raise $1 million or $10 million? Should you be going after B2B sales or serving consumers? Should you hire two people, 10 people, 100 people? Should you shut this plant in the face of a pandemic or stick it out? The four elements again, options, which lead to decisions, leverage, which means that our choices have repercussions, and responsibility, which means that if we make a choice, it's on us about what happens next. Video games and toys gave kids and teenagers a chance to make decisions without consequences. If you build a tower of blocks and it falls over, no one knows you don't get in trouble. You just get to build another tower of blocks. If you're playing Tetris or Pac-Man or online chess and you make a mistake, you just get to do it again. But then shifting to massive multiplayer games or considering social media, it shifts again because there are repercussions to your decisions because suddenly they start impacting other people. That going on social media is very different than going down the street to have coffee with a friend. There's a permanent or semi-permanent record of the choices that you're making, of the decisions that may or may not impact how you're engaging with others. That what we've done is handed millions and millions of people, perhaps billions of people, a high leverage choice machine loaded with responsibility where there are options and there are decisions to make over and over again. Or let's flip sideways a little bit to medicine. 300 years ago, if you wanted to stay healthy, there weren't that many decisions to make. In the 60s, we started saying to people, if you smoke or if you drink and drive or if you abuse drugs, your health will be impacted. We can prove it. Where are you ahead, Johnny Smoke? How many silos will be empty tonight? How many men will lie still beneath the sky? How many tears will be shed because of you? How many more will die? Suddenly, there's a decision to make with enormous repercussions, and it won't impact you, maybe, for 20 or 30 years. 50 years ago, if you went to the doctor, there weren't that many options about how you were going to be treated. There was one doctor, your doctor. He or she told you what to do, and that's what you did. Do you frequently gaze emotionally out the window while sad piano music plays in the background? Then it's time to seek help. It's time to ask your doctor about tacos. As we started exploring things like cancer treatments, though, Suddenly, there were really significant choices to make, choices to make about the duration and severity of the treatment we were signing up for. And then we opened the door to what should we do about end-of-life decisions, because end-of-life didn't used to last for five or 10 years of torture, because end-of-life didn't used to be a decision that we rightfully should have been discussing with the other people in our family or thinking about things that have turned controversial, which probably shouldn't have, is it a decision to vaccinate your kids? Is it a decision to wear a mask or not in the face of a pandemic? Epidemiologists will make it clear to us that it's not. 
But some people, amplified by the media, would like to make it into a decision by creating options. And those options have enormous leverage because they don't just impact the person who is making the choice, they impact everyone around that person as well. And so as we start to look at all of the decisions in front of us, we can become exhausted. What is natural to do is to limit the scope of the decisions that are on our plate because we are exhausted by living with the responsibility for these choices. So here's a really simple example designed to help us see how all of these choices stack up. I was talking to a friend, an entrepreneur, who's leading a new company, and we discussed the idea of making an explainer video. You've probably seen these. They're about a minute long. Sometimes they have wavy little images that go with them. And in one minute or two minutes, a voiceover combined with a little bit of animation explains how a new service or technology works. Children grow up fast. It's important to make every moment count. The benefit of an explainer video is you can use it over and over again. It adds energy and a veneer of professionalism to what you're building as opposed to having people sit through a really long video explaining something that you could do in a more concentrated form or reading a manual. Okay, so what are the choices? Well, choice one, the biggest one, the easiest one to avoid is, should I have an explainer video? Most people who have something to explain never even considered that that's one of their choices. But using online freelance bureaus, you can get one built for a couple hundred bucks. You can afford it if you are running any sort of enterprise, but first you have to realize you could get one made. Next question. Who should make it for you? What's the method? Should you hire a really expensive agency or should you break it down into little pieces and have them done by people who don't charge very much? Next question. Have you written a brief, a design brief, showing the person or the team you're going to hire what you want it to be like when it's done? Another choice. Should that simply be, here's one made by a non-competitor of ours, make it look like this? Or is it more detailed than that? Here are the eight points that we want to explain. Here is the style of images we want to use. Here are what the eight images are. Here is the script we would like to use. This is the voiceover person that has a tone that we would like to emulate. Decision, decision, decision. All of these things are optional. They're optional because if we're just doing our job, it means we're answering incoming email. It means we're going to the next meeting that someone else put on our calendar. But what has happened just in the last 20 years is that the number of people who get to put something on someone else's calendar has gone up dramatically. That the options that are in front of us keep shifting. That the number of places that we can show up with an idea and offer an opportunity for someone to move forward has gone up by many factors of 10. That the leverage keeps increasing and in certain spaces, responsibility decreases because people have worked really hard to become trolls, to show up and just yell and then run away. And in other places, we have more responsibility than ever. The responsibility to take care of our neighbors, 
the responsibility to stand up for racial justice, the responsibility to own the choices we are making. And again, in the face of all of it, it's easier to say, what is on TV tonight? But even that question brings us back to modern choice theory. Because what's on TV tonight used to be there are three channels. Which one do you want to watch? And now it's everything. Everything is on TV tonight. And when confronted with everything is on TV tonight, more and more people default to, well, what are the three hottest things on Netflix? What we know about Google search results is this. You can search for almost anything and find 100,000 matches. And almost everyone, more than 95% of the people, will click a match from the very first page. Is that because we know that the things on the very first page are always the best for us? Of course not. Is it because we won't get any benefit by looking at pages 4 or 8 or 12? No, we know that too. It's because we're exhausted. We're exhausted. So modern choice theory involves realizing we have options, understanding that those options bring us leverage, that that leverage often requires us to take responsibility, and so we have to make decisions. But when we feel the fatigue setting in, we have to make a meta decision. And the meta decision is to decide about deciding, to decide if what we do for a living is make decisions. We don't make widgets. We don't make waffles. We make decisions. And if we're going to make decisions, the next meta question is, for who? When? Who gets to decide which decisions you're going to make all day? That if you journaled all of the decisions you made yesterday, or all the ones you expect to have to make tomorrow, the question is, would that list be the list you would choose if you were doing it with intent? We now live in an era of maximum choice, and most of us are throwing it away. We are letting other people dictate the rhythm. Other people dictate the agenda. We don't have to do that. We can choose to take responsibility, not just for the enterprise that we are part of or the one that we are choosing to run, but for the health of us and the people we care about and the people around us, that it is all on the table because we have amplified our voices. But to what end? I think we've amplified them to make things better. So yes, we're in the business of making choices. We should choose wisely. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with a couple of questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? When is it time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Reading Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi. 
Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. Some weeks, there are a bunch of questions. Some weeks, hardly any. So if you've got a question about this or any previous episode of this podcast, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Two questions this week about copyrights, patents, trademarks, and most of all, protection, but they're both really quite related. Here we go. Hello, Seth. I recently discovered you through some references from, from some friends. I had a question for you about patents. I am currently building a product that is new to the market. I have enough money to build the product, but as you mentioned in your podcast, it could cost up to $25,000 to get a patent attorney to patent the product. And uh, those funds are not available. I would be curious to know what the best plan of attack is moving forward. Because number one, I want to protect the idea and the concept. It does advance technology in my business. However, once again, I've been waiting, actually, I've been waiting 10 years to build this and finally got the funds to build it. Hope that makes sense. Thank you. Thank you for this, and congratulations on getting to the point where you're about to bring your idea to the world. Here is the truth. The truth is that in 1920 or 1900 or even 1935, a solo inventor with a patent could use that patent to make a pile of money. In the 1960s, someone invented the intermittent windshield wiper. Fortunately, he got a patent because when the big car company stole his idea, he then devoted decades of his life to suing them and ended up winning those lawsuits. But time has passed, and now it is 2021, which means that most of the fundamental ideas that you can get a strong patent on as an individual inventor are done. They're taken. What's left are either process patents, which are sketchy and really hard to win, or perhaps, maybe, just maybe, you in your basement workshop came up with something extraordinary that's straightforward to patent. I think it's far more likely that this is a distraction. It's a distraction because if you come up with something that is truly useful The thing is, lots of organizations have enough money and enough focus to come up with another version of that utility without having to pay you a penny. You are very unlikely to be able to cash out your idea because you have protected it with a patent. It is far more likely that your idea will be valuable because you have built a community, because you have created a network effect because you have built a brand, because you have traction with an audience, with customers. Those are the things that companies are interested in licensing and acquiring. They will tell you they need to see your patent, but that's just a stalling maneuver. A patent will slow you down. A patent will cost you a lot of money. Now, I might be wrong. You might be the exception. You might have something, a fundamental new way to deliver a pharmaceutical, a brand new way to do brain data interfaces. I don't know, but as somebody who has a patent or two, I can tell you that it's cumbersome, it's expensive, 
and it doesn't make a big difference. Customer traction makes a big difference. Here's one last thought on this. This isn't going to be your last idea. Give it away as hard and as widely as you can, because if it works, you'll make money. And even if you don't, you'll be the person who invented the thing that worked, and then you'll get a chance to invent the next thing. That we can't walk into the world of ideas holding them tight to our chest because people are busy and they have options. And if you're not going to share the creation that you've just made, we're not going to know about it. And if we don't know about it, it's not going to work. So that's my rant. Thanks for the question. Hi, Seth. What do you think of our current copyright system? The media industry has been battling digital piracy for two decades now, and it's not clear who's winning. Should piracy be a crime? Should creators somehow take power away from the media industry so they can make more and charge less? Should there be a totally different copyright system in the future? I have a feeling you'll say something like, well, you should be so good that your fans enjoy paying for your content. But what about the fans who simply can't afford to do that? I'm looking forward to your thoughts. Thanks. Thank you for this. It ties in to my previous rant, and here's my thinking on this. In a world in which there was no piracy, in a world in which people couldn't share ideas in any form, the chances that someone with a new song or a new book could break through are close to zero. That big copyright holders have argued, and lately in Australia, the news people have argued, that there should be a lockdown. Intellectual property is a tricky name because it's not like real property. Real property doesn't scale. Only one person can have this acre of land at a time. If lots and lots and lots of people come to this acre of land and all try to claim it, they're either going to end up each with a blade of grass or there's going to be a big fight. On the other hand, if everybody is listening to a Pharrell Williams song, It's worth more, not less. The magic of intellectual property is that it is the fabric of our culture. Not only does it gain attention, it earns trust. It gives us permission to talk to people. We are the creator of X. Now we can bring them Y. That the history of intellectual property spreading shows over and over again that the more easily it spreads, the better the creators of intellectual property do. That's just a fact. Yes, there are small exceptions. It could be that you don't have a mass market product, that you have an idea that 100 companies need the formula of, and that piracy could cost you a lot. But I've got a hunch that that's not what we're talking about. This desire to sue your fans, it goes way back. The RIAA proved, after spending millions and millions and millions of dollars, that it doesn't work. Not only doesn't it eliminate piracy, it also enrages the very people you're hoping will care about what you do. So there's not a lot of argument about the math here. The real question for me is who is going to build platforms that treat creators fairly? And by fairly, I mean for all of us, does it make it more likely that the right creator with the right intent will make more stuff because that's what we really need 
We need another breakthrough opera. We need another great protest song. We need another book that will change our life. What is going to make that likely to happen? So, 50 years ago, Putnam, Perigee, Random House, all of them said, if you've got the great American novel, we'd like to pay you money. And it created a ratchet, a cultural habit of going off and writing the great American novel. And then Amazon comes along and says, well, anybody who wants to can publish anything they want on the Kindle, and we're not going to pay you anything. And maybe you'll make something in royalties. And so the door opens wide, but it's not a lottery the way it used to be in the sense that you got the prize at the beginning. What you got was the chance to be your own marketer, because Amazon doesn't care which books they sell as long as they sell something. And in one sense, that led to the creation of a lot of books. In the other sense, it didn't lead to a certain kind of person writing books because there wasn't a lottery. What there was was a chance to become a marketer. Or if we think about the dynamic of podcasting, the middlemen have not yet come along that make it financially feasible for the typical person to have a podcast. That's not why you should do it. You shouldn't do it because you're going to sell ads because you won't. You should do it because the craft of talking to that smallest viable audience will enrich your life and may help other areas of your business life go forward. So I don't think it really helps for us to have a conversation about rewriting copyright laws because we can't because the powerful forces that are involved will step in and make it even worse for people like you. I do think it makes sense for us to be on the alert for what sort of platforms could make it so that individual creators are inspired and motivated to create the kind of stuff that our culture needs and wants. We don't need more trolls. We don't need more one-minute stupid YouTube videos. We do need substantial bodies of work made by committed creators who are doing it because they can, because they want to. That's not a copyright problem. That's a middleman problem. Thanks for listening to my rants. We'll see you all next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like, we have data. What All MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more 
at altmba.com.